Father, we lift you up, uh, lift up to you this night uh, our intentions and our desires as we give you thanks for gathering us together. Uh, Father, we come uh, principally to study your word. As you know, we come uh, anxious to hear the Holy Spirit teach us, uh, but we don't want to forget, Father, that we also come with burdens and with uh, cares and concerns and needs. And you know those things already, Father, but we do bring them back to mind individually as we lift them up to you. And we pray, Father, that your will would be done in our lives and the many issues that we face, that we would have the patience and uh, the open heart and open mind to understand your purpose if it, it's possible to understand it and to accept it, Father. And we pray as well that you brought us here for a purpose and that we would know that purpose even as we open your word, that we would be uh, aware, Father, of how you intend to use what we learn tonight, that we would be ready, Father, to perhaps accept a, a changed perspective on something we have seen in Scripture, perhaps a, a new way of thinking about the Word or perhaps just a new way of, of living it out. And we do pray that we would be a light, Father, to those in this church that uh, we may meet and those outside as well, that we can uh, explain to them what we've learned and that we can continue, Father, to build them up as you would us here. And I pray, Father, that all that we do would be pleasing and according to your will. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Luke chapter 13, we're still there, as you know. Last week... Um, as we began that chapter, we began looking at how Jesus was challenging the crowd that had gathered around him. And the challenge he laid out before them was really for them to see themselves as they really should. First and foremost, for them to see themselves as who they truly were. Number one, they were sinners. They were sinners before God, and he wanted them to understand they all deserved punishment as a sinner. So none could stand before him and say, uh, I do not have any reason to be punished. I do not have any reason to fear the Lord. And therefore, they all had need to repent. Follow us from the end of chapter 12. If you remember into the beginning of chapter 13, we said that Jesus was dealing with a Jewish culture, a Jewish perspective, that said, among other things, that as a Jew born into the nation, a son or a daughter of Abraham, they had no reason to fear that they were outside of God's pleasure. And they often looked to those who had seen judgment, had seen something come upon them, some calamity come upon them as evidence that they were outside God's pleasure. They had made that connection. You remember we taught about that last week. And we ended last week going into a parable. Uh, just to emphasize this point, Jesus uses a parable here at the beginning of chapter 13, as he often does, to illustrate his point. So let's begin tonight by reading the parable in verse, beginning in verse 6. Luke 13, verse 6. And he began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I've come looking for the fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. Now we started looking at this last week. And if you remember when we went through it, we said that getting this parable right really depends heavily on understanding the elements in the parable, on naming the elements and identifying who they are. The most prominent actor, let's begin with the most prominent one, the most prominent actor, if you will, in this parable is the fig tree itself, this tree that's at issue in the parable. The tree, we, we are told, is part of a vineyard. In other words, this tree exists for a specific reason. This is not a minor point, as you remember from last week, I hope, it's not a wild fig tree. It's a tree, rather, that someone planted in 
the specific purpose or for the specific purpose that this tree would produce fruit for its owner. Now, you may not have given that much thought, but I want you to consider that for a moment. You don't plant a fruit tree in a vineyard because you want shade. You don't plant a fruit tree in the vineyard because you'd like something to kind of break up the landscape. You're doing it because it it produces fruit, and that's what's of value to you. Moving on, another actor in this parable is the owner. The owner of the field who came to the tree, we're told at some point, looking for the fruit and couldn't find any. When he arrives, we're told he finds no fruit, and his reaction really communicates to us, this is a pathetic sight. This is something that is miserable. It's, it's disappointing, to say the least. And we've said already, a fruit tree that doesn't produce fruit is, again, a pretty worthless thing. It's useless to the owner. Finally, there's the master of the field, or the vineyard keeper, rather, working for the master of the field. He's the caretaker of the trees. He's the one who's trying to make it produce fruit. He's the one who's trying to prompt some production out of the tree. And when the owner, we're told, comes along and finds this tree empty of fruit, he tells the vineyard keeper, get rid of this worthless tree. That's his first reaction. Now, I want you to take note here of just a couple of details. Number one, it doesn't appear as though the owner would seem to be blaming the vineyard keeper, does it? If you look at the text, you don't get the impression that his anger or his concern is directed at the man. It's always directed at the tree. What he's doing, though, with the case of this vineyard keeper is he's giving this vineyard keeper the order to do his bidding because it is, in fact, the vineyard keeper's responsibility to do this very thing, to either you know, fertilize and, and build this tree up or, if necessary, cut it down if it won't produce fruit. So I want you to understand that the anger of the owner is directed 100% to the tree itself, not to the man who's responsible for keeping it. Number two, the other thing I want you to take out of this parable, I believe is accurate, is that the vineyard keeper is doing everything he can to make the tree produce fruit. It's not as though he's ambivalent. It's not as though he has no direct connection to the tree. He's sort of an innocent bystander. He has an investment in this tree. He feels some desire to give it another chance. That tells me that he's been working with it, hoping that it would produce fruit. And so far, it hasn't, and he hasn't given up on it yet. He's asking the owner for one last try. So as the parable goes on, this vineyard keeper responds to the owner's disappointment and anger over the useless tree by saying, give it one more year. Before we destroy it, let's give it a little more care, a little more feeding, and let's see if we can get production out of it. And we know the owner agrees to give it that time. He says it's already been three years. And now he wants to wait one more year. Now, it is possible to see this three plus one perhaps as being specific in some spiritual way. Perhaps it represents the years of Jesus' ministry on earth or in some other way. I think it's just more likely a general reference to God's patience or his appointed time, his appointed period for patience. In other words, the number itself may not mean much. It may simply be representative of the fact that there is a period of time in which God is willing to be patient. In other words, he's not willing to wait forever. The point to be taken out of the fact that there is a number is that it is not the number infinity. It is not indefinite. It is rather definite. He doesn't have infinite patience. There will be a day of reckoning for this tree. So to kind of put a period to the parable, to put a point to it, if the tree doesn't produce fruit, it only has a limited amount of time before it wears out the patience of the owner and the vineyard keeper will have no choice but to strike it down to bring it down. So what's Jesus teaching here? What's the application out of the moment, out of the context of chapter 13 and really going all the way back into chapter 12? Well, remember, immediately before this parable, Jesus had just taught the crowd that they had to repent or face judgment. So with that context in mind, 
I think you have the key to understanding the meaning of the parable. Let's begin with the fig tree. It's a classic picture of Israel. We said this last time, right? Fig trees in Scripture can often be seen as a picture of Israel itself, as a picture of the nation. If you want some references for future study, you can see that in Hosea 9, chapter 9, verse 10. You can see the reference again in Jeremiah 8, verse 13. And there are many other places. Those are two I'll give you for future study. Let me go to one, though, that's in Luke itself, a little further back in the book of Luke, in chapter 21. There's a point where Jesus, in talking about the end times, about, the, about His second coming, He begins to describe the regathering of the nation of Israel in the last days, and He makes a comparison to that regathering to the appearance of leaves on a fig tree. In chapter 21, verse 29, it says, Jesus told them a parable. Behold, the fig tree... As soon as they put forth leaves, you see it and you know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happen, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. If you know your eschatology, if you've studied a bit about end times, you know that one of the key signs that we have entered the end times is that the nation of Israel, as a physical entity, not just simply as the people, but as a nation, is regathered and reconstituted and called back into their land and made a nation again. We know that's happened over a series of decades in the last century. And in the course of that occurring, we know we have been placed back into the last days as Christ described them. We don't know how long they last. We don't understand perhaps enough of the detail to say definitively how much longer they'll go, but we do know we are there. So any reference in, in Scripture that begins to make uh, a point about end times or the last days, that's teaching that should be particularly pertinent for Christians today. It should have a, a particular interest for any Christian today because we are living in those days and we don't know how much longer they'll last. When you see Israel regathered, he says, it's much like when you see leaves appearing on the fig tree, you know summer is right around the corner. And that's the picture that helps us understand how Israel can often be seen as a fig tree. So if this parable is talking about the nation of Israel failing to bear spiritual fruit, in light of the earlier context where Jesus is taught they've got to repent or suffer judgment, it seems appropriate to conclude he's referring to an unfruitful Israel in his day. In the day Jesus was standing on the earth, walking about, uh, teaching, he refers to the nation as being unfruitful in that day and therefore deserving of judgment and being called upon to repent. And that tree, that nation, was planted for a reason. God didn't bring the nation of Israel into being for its own, ex for its own sake, as a trophy. But he brought it into the world primarily for two reasons, we're told in Scripture. Paul tells us that they are going to be the ones who have the benefit of receiving the oracles of God, the Word of God. They are the nation through whom He gave the Word. And secondly, they are going to be the nation through whom He gives His Son, the seed promised in Genesis chapter 3. They had those two privileges and they were brought about, they were brought together for those two very important reasons so that the whole world may benefit, so that through Abraham all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Now having brought that nation up for that purpose, He is now given the Word, it is soon to be complete through the apostles' teaching. And he has now brought his son. And if the nation will not respond to that promise, bearing fruit, in other words, to the promises they were given, then they have ceased to have a purpose in that day. Now, we understand from Paul's teaching as he takes us through God's plan, in, in particularly the book of Romans, we know that the nation is not going to be judged unto its destruction. There will always remain a remnant until God's appointed time for his son's return. But that does not mean that the nation will not see judgment and will not see a catastrophe brought upon it for its rejection of the Messiah. And that is exactly what we know eventually occurs 
when Jerusalem is destroyed in about 70 A.D. But here he is looking at them saying, if you are not prepared to accept your Messiah, repent and receive what God has brought for you, then you will be like that tree that doesn't produce fruit. It has no value to the Master. So when the Messiah comes to them as the Father promised, they either receive Him and bear fruit, or they suffer the judgment that comes upon those who would not. Now there's an important point I need to emphasize as we move out of this parable. Chapters 11 through 13 are a pivotal point in the Gospel of Luke. You could think of it as a three-act drama, with chapters 11, 12, and 13 each playing an act in this very critical moment in the Gospel. Jesus came offering the kingdom. As the Messiah, as the promised one, he came ready to set up his kingdom on earth if only the nation of Israel would accept him as their king. They reject him. At some point, that rejection is confirmed. He acknowledges it, in other words. And the offer is withdrawn. And now all that remains is his time on the cross to die and be resurrected. That, that in other words, the opportunity for the nation of Israel has come and gone. That doesn't occur in a moment. It occurs over these three chapters as Luke portrays it. In the other Gospels, it's drawn out in, different, in a different way. But in Luke, it comes as a three-chapter act, a three-chapter uh, three drama, I call it, in, th in three parts, 11, 12, and 13. And, of course, we're in 13 now, so we're moving toward the end of this transition. And in this parable, what Jesus has just warned is that the Father does not have infinite patience for their rejection. If they don't bear fruit... There's going to be a day when he cuts down that tree, and it's a day that, in this case, means he's going to bring the nation low. I want you to see how Scripture magnifies itself here. Look at chapter 5 of Isaiah. If you have time to thumb there, it's about nine verses, so we'll read it for a few minutes. But then I just need to read it. I don't need to comment on it. It's so clear in its own right in explaining the connection. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1. Isaiah says this, Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around and removed its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it. And he also hewn out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes. And it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard than I have not done for it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, why did it produce worthless ones? So, now, let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, the city of distress. Woe to those who add house to house and join field to field until there is no more room, so that you have to live alone in the midst of the land. In my ears the Lord of hosts has sworn, surely many houses shall become desolate, even great and fine ones without occupants. Now, that spoken in the day of Isaiah was the nation's proclamation of judgment for their rejection of of their God and of the covenant they entered into under Moses. But it is a also a perfect picture, almost prophetic picture, of what's going to happen in the day of Christ's coming and subsequent to the nation of Israel in the years following his uh, death on the cross, how God is going to turn and judge them again for their rejection of him. And he makes the connection here much more clearly for us between vineyard 
and the nation of Israel. Now, remember in the parable, it's a fig tree, granted, but it's still in a vineyard. Remember, it's mentioned to be a, a vine keeper. So we're looking here at Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 9, being a wonderful picture of where God's going with the nation of Israel. But now we're going to move on. We're going to move away from this with Luke going further into Luke chapter 13 as a new sequence builds. And as I said, we're going to come back in and try to examine the three-part act that's being reflected here as it builds in, the, in this first half of chapter 13. Let's go now into chapter 13, verse 10. And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who for 18 years had had a sickness caused by a spirit. And she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. But the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowd in response, There are six days in which work should be done. So come during them and get healed, and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, she should not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said this, all his opponents were being humiliated. And the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. Okay, now you're going to bear with me as we build here because though there's an obvious transition here, your first question might be, how does this fit into what's going on around this scene? Why would the Gospel writer stick this here? In fact, if you're not prone to asking that question, let me encourage you to start asking that question because if it uh, seems strange to you, then there's something we're missing because there's nothing capricious about the way God knits His Word together. So why would Luke interrupt such an important series of events going all the way back now to chapter 11 with what otherwise seems like a normal everyday miracle in Jesus' ministry? We hear about this kind of stuff all the time in the Gospels. Why talk about it here and now? Well, let's set the stage. First, these events probably transpired days, hours, maybe even weeks apart from the events that are going on around it. In other words, I think what Luke is doing here is placing this teaching in this moment because he feels it fits so neatly within the theme that's building in these chapters. That's not unusual. If that bothers you for any reason, let me help you get through that because the Gospel writers all had different perspectives. The fact that they might take events and change them in time doesn't make it less valuable, any less authoritative, any less accurate. Because the events themselves existed in moments of time that in between which we have huge spans of time that are completely unrepresented in the Gospel, right? The Gospel record is not a diary of Christ's life from, from the moment he took his first breath until he died on the cross. There's huge gaps in his life all through his life, not in the Gospel. So by definition, every Gospel account is a picking and choosing of events to tell a story. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they pick certain things and put them in certain order to make a certain point. And we have four and not one, because in putting all four together, we get the mosaic that the Holy Spirit expected we would have. Luke's purpose in writing is to a Gentile or Greek audience for the purpose of explaining how God could be both man and God at the same time. That was his principal purpose. And here he is about explaining why he had to die. To a Greek mind, a God coming to earth and being put to death by other men made no sense. If you're God, why would you have to subject yourself to that kind of outcome? To understand that is, to, is, is beginning and to build now in these chapters to help somebody understand that is beginning and even here. So Luke takes an event that, by the way, is not recorded in any of the other Gospels. This particular miracle here is unique to, to Luke's Gospel. And he inserts an event that the other Gospel writers chose to completely overlook 
And he puts it here for a reason. So we need to take a look at that. It's sandwiched here between two related thoughts. It's sandwiched between, on the one hand, Jesus' call at the beginning of chapter 13 for the nation to repent. We just studied through that and we saw a parable that illustrated that. Then we get the miracle here. And then following it, picking up in about verse 18 and beyond, is a discussion that we'll, we'll obviously cover you know, here shortly on the nature of God's coming kingdom. And in fact, that's going to be the topic for next week. So you have a discussion on the coming kingdom, a need to repent to enter the kingdom, and then this miracle that's sandwiched between them. To understand what Luke's doing here, to understand this transition a little better, we've got to look at the details, as you might expect, the details here of this, of this particular event. First, I want you to note he's in a synagogue. Now, that's not unusual. Jesus, as he traveled, made a point regularly to show up in a synagogue on the Sabbath, wherever he was, and he often taught. Especially once he became prominent in his ministry, he would have been expected to teach. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but in Jesus' day and, and for many generations before and after in synagogues, the typical pattern was for the newcomer to be the one given the honor to teach. If they were an adult male over a certain age, they would have that honor. So imagine that as you visit a church sometime. Just think about what it would be like as a visitor. You get the chance to teach is because you're the visitor. But that would have been the custom in that day, at least for a rabbi. Let's put it in those terms. For a rabbi, he would have been given that honor. And so as it was his custom... He came in and he taught. Now, what, what's important about that here is the fact that he takes the chance to teach means he is immediately a target for the Pharisees. And he's a target uh, particularly because it's a Sabbath and the Pharisees had basically turned the Sabbath into the religious equivalent of a police speed trap. If there was anything you could do wrong that they could catch you on, they were doubly likely to do it on a Sabbath day. That was, their, that was the special day of the week for them for catching people doing things wrong. And so with Jesus being somebody they, they dearly hoped to catch doing something wrong, the Sabbath was a day of particular attention for them. So Luke tells us there's a woman in the crowd, in the Sabbath day uh, audience at this uh, synagogue, who had suffered for 18 years, we're told, with a paralysis. And this paralysis is so severe it's caused her to bend over double. Now, in looking at the details there for a moment, the number 18, uh, it may have some spiritual significance, although frankly I'm not sure what it would mean if it did, but I do find it a little bit more than interesting that 18 is simply three sixes. Six, six, six. And then you add to that the fact that we're told this, this illness is the product of a demon. So there's no guesswork there. We are looking at demonic influence in this woman's life as the principal purpose behind, or the principal reason behind her illness. And then the number of years being three times six adds a curious quality all its own. You know, it's interesting though you may have read that it was demonic and noted that as you read past it, did you stop and think about this for a minute? That somebody who had come upon this woman in today's terms, in this world today, and seen her in this state, do you think they would have accepted a diagnosis of demonic possession as an answer for why she had what she had? This muscular skeletal disease, this deformity, you know, something we today might have characterized any number of other ways, medically speaking. Scripture tells us this woman had a demonic presence. C.S. Lewis once said this in his screw tape letters. He said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall concerning devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and they hail a materialist as much as a magician with the same delight. And I think that's the culture we live in. I say this in passing, but I do believe that Many things that today the secular world would essentially cast off under secular explanation 
can actually be traced back to demonic uh, involvement, at least to some degree. And I don't mean just the Hollywood demonic possession, head spinning, bed screaming, blood on the window kind of over the top display of demonic possession, though that may very well be part of it. But in the case of someone whose life simply looks like you know, an unhealthy person, a person with a disease, a person whose life doesn't uh, you know, go exactly the way they want physically, who's to say how many of those don't have at their root perhaps demonic influence? And that would, of course, be limited to unbelievers. Scripture makes clear that a believer does not have the uh, potential to be demonically possessed. So Jesus takes note of this woman in the crowd. He calls her over and he heals her instantly. Uh, I want to make another point here. It's important to note she doesn't ask for healing. In other cases, and particularly in most cases, Jesus responds to requests. The woman who touches his cloak, the man who, uh, who, who's dropped down through the ceiling by his friends because he's a paralytic. In, all, in most cases, healings take place for people who have in some fashion appealed to Jesus for his healing power. And here we have, uh, and I don't want to say this is the only example of this, but here we have one of the more unique examples where the healing comes without the person making any suggestion or indication that they desired healing. What we're saying here is that Jesus, by his grace and mercy, steps into this woman's life and chooses to heal her apart from her own uh, desires or requests. And of course, I'm not suggesting she didn't want to be healed. But I am telling you that the scriptures don't show us that she ever appealed directly to Jesus for that healing. Now, Luke tells this simple story of Jesus healing another woman for at least a couple of important reasons. And the reasons I'll give you here, they don't just explain why he places it here, but they also explain why he chose to record it at all when the other gospel writers didn't. First, consider that Jesus, as I said, just taught the nation they've got to repent and settle their debts with their judge. Now think about this for a minute. They were just as worthy, he told them, worthy of destruction, as those Galileans who had seen their blood mixed with the blood of their sacrifices were told at the beginning of chapter 13. Their this crowd, the nation of Israel as represented by the people and the leaders around Jesus in this moment, were just as guilty as that crowd of Galileans and just as worthy of that judgment, he tells them. But if that crowd is nothing more than unworthy sinners, in the similar way that those Galileans may have been, sinners who justly deserve God's judgment, well then, what hope is it for them to ever recover? Remember what a Jew used to think as they were taught in their law and as they were brought up? They weren't taught, here's how to get out from under God's judgment. They were taught, here's how not to get under his judgment. Keep the law to avoid judgment. Keep the Passover. Keep the festivals. Do what's righteous and you'll be pleasing to God. If you are a sinner, you're condemned to death. You see, there was not grace taught in the law. The law wasn't given for that purpose. So the picture drawn in the mind of a Jew was not about how to recover. It was always from the standpoint of how to avoid how to stay out of trouble, or in some cases, simply the assumption that they were never going to be in trouble because they were Jews. The Gentiles were the dogs, they were the sinners, they had no hope. The J Jewish nation from, from Abraham was the privileged nation called out by God and would never have to fear judgment. If they had accepted Jesus' teaching, therefore, at the beginning of 13, to know that they were just as guilty as any other sinner, just as worthy as judgment of any other sinner, where would that leave them in light of what they'd been taught? It would leave them with no hope. It would leave them thinking, well, then what point is there in approaching God or his temple? I'm due judgment if I were to do that. Another way to look at it is, if this nation is like a sick, worthless tree that cannot bear fruit, then what's going to save them from the coming judgment? How can they ever be made to produce fruit if they are, in fact, a sick, worthless tree that can't? 
produce fruit. It's, it's a corner they've been boxed in they can't find a solution for. Remember the fertilizer in the parable, though? Remember that little detail in the parable? What did the vine keeper say he was going to do? He said, I have a solution, I think. Give me one more year and let's see if it produces any fruit. Keeping that in mind, let's return to our story for a moment. Looking now at the woman, looking at some of the details of her situation, we told already she's crippled. She's in the grip of this enemy. Her body is suffering, we're told. It's, I would argue, maybe even dying slowly from this paralysis. As you bend over, your diaphragm has an increasingly difficult time expanding your lungs in order to bring any oxygen into your body. That's often what will kill a a, a polio victim, for example. It's the fact that they cannot expand their lungs enough to breathe due to paralysis. I'm not saying I know that for a fact here, but it's not inconceivable that this woman's life was slowly being squeezed out of her by her paralysis. And she's probably unable to help herself in any way that that culture could have expected her to, do, to, to help herself. There was no remedy possible. And as we said already, she never asked Jesus to heal her. He takes mercy on her, and by His grace, He determines to heal her. And appropriately enough, He heals her on the Sabbath day, giving her rest from her affliction on the day of rest appointed from God. And then look what she does after she's healed. After she's healed, it's a very brief reference. At the end of those verses I read, what does she do? Well, in simple terms, she bears fruit. In the simplest terms, in glorifying God, it's a simple view of her bearing fruit. So Luke places this account here between the verses of the beginning at the end of chapter 13 to make a connection for the reader. To make a connection to the ones... Remember, these events didn't flow like this in real life, so the connection isn't being made for the people in the moment but it's being made for you and I today and for any who came along and read this account later. You have on the one hand this sinless, or this sinful, sorry, this sinful, hopeless state, the nation of Israel, and you find it at the footsteps of the kingdom rejecting their Messiah. And their one hope that's been given from God to rescue them from their spiritual affliction is their Messiah standing before them. Sin, I think it's fair to say, is a spiritual paralysis. And I don't think I'm playing with words here. I think if you understand the nature of sin in the body and what it does to us vis-a-vis our relationship with God, how it paralyzes us into doing what the flesh desires, and it stands as a wall between us and God, ever pleasing Him, ever being able to do His will, it is truly a spiritual paralysis. And it's brought about by man's disobedience, yes, but it's nurtured and magnified by the power of the enemy. And so, without God's intervention... Without God stepping in by His decision, by His grace and mercy of His own volition and bringing those He wills into His grace and mercy such that He removes that paralysis, there is no hope. There could be no hope. There could be no hope of self-rescue for this woman any more than for the nation of Israel. And ultimately, all that remains is death and judgment to follow. But just like the woman in the synagogue, Israel could look to Jesus for that healing and if they received Him, they would receive Not just healing, but God's grace instead of judgment. But they have to receive Him. So what do the leaders of Israel say in the face of this miracle? And I think here's where Luke begins to show you how chapter 13 is going to turn out, if you didn't already know. Luke 13, 14. But the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowd in response, there are six days in which work should be done. (laughs) So come during them and get healed and not on the Sabbath day, he says. This official, he becomes indignant and then he has the gall to chastise the crowd because they desire to be healed on the Sabbath day. And he tells them, come back for healing on one of the other six days of the week. 
I mean, you laugh if you think about it. It's so absurd. A man has just performed a miracle in your midst, a miracle of healing that should have had the crowd on their knees, legitimately, and it happens in God's gathering place. I mean, what better place to have it happen? And again, on the Sabbath, on the day God is destined for men to be freed from burden, it's a day of rest in every sense of the word, and the official's first concern is that it took place on the wrong day. It's hard to believe anybody could be that oblivious to what's happening around them in the moment. And yet that's exactly how blind these people were to the truth. It's like, in a simple analogy, it's like complaining to your wife that she chose to go into labor on the wrong day and ruined your golf game. Has that ever happened? If it has, I'm sorry, I don't want to bring up old wounds. But you know what I'm saying? It's, it's, it's like missing the forest for the trees. And that's the sense of what's going on in this moment. But it's not just that this is comical or that it's some guy who's so insensitive he can't see what's happening. It's a great picture of how much people are spiritually deadened by sin. What a hard heart actually looks like. It's blind to those things that to someone enlightened spiritually make, look so obvious. The things that you and I read out of Scripture and say, that makes perfect sense. I don't know why everyone doesn't agree with this. It's because you're seeing things with the eyes that God has given you to see, having brought you to faith, while the rest of the world, with a hard heart and without, with a veil, Paul says, over the heart, has an impossibility in front of them. They cannot understand the things of God. It is foolishness to them. And this is a thing of God in their midst. God himself. Now, it's interesting we're not just talking about a Pharisee now. We're talking about a synagogue official. This would be like a worship leader slash pastor, if you will, in the sense of what was a role of a synagogue official in Jesus' day. It's not a perfect comparison, but you kind of get the idea. So now we've moved outside of the pharisaical, political realm, and we've moved into a more everyday leadership role within the nation of Israel, and yet you get the same result that you were getting from the Pharisees in earlier chapters. So again, we have an official unwilling to acknowledge Jesus is who he said he was. And then he demands that the crowd depart. That's not a minor point either. Because what he's seeing here is that you are not allowed to seek after Jesus except under the terms and conditions we set forth. They set themselves up, uh, intentionally or otherwise, as a barrier between the people and the truth. They insert themselves as a barrier by virtue of their reaction. In their hardness of heart, the man has become a barrier to the people accepting their Messiah. And look at Jesus' response. It's uh, easy enough to see his tone as angry, sort of a righteous anger. And he calls them again hypocrites. Remember what that word means, right? Hypocrite is not somebody who doesn't understand the truth. The hypocrite is somebody who consciously decides to uh, portray themselves in one way while truly thinking and acting in a different way when no one else is looking. It's, a, it's an attempt to, to pass yourself off in a way that's not accurate. So this is a man who knows that what he just saw is appropriate, but for other purposes, for selfish, sinful purposes, in, in hypocrisy, he condemns it. They're trying to convince the people, by the way, that they shouldn't follow Jesus because he violates rules. That's the basic principle that he's putting forth to these people. You're wrong if you accept this man and what he just did because you're endorsing someone who's a lawbreaker. You're endorsing someone who's willing to do things the wrong way. And therefore, anyone who violates the rules, they can't be worthy of your admiration. It's, that's the logic that this man is placing before the crowd. And so that's why Jesus looks at him and says, you're a hypocrite. Number one, he responds to the faulty logic and, and, and exposes the hypo hypocrisy by using this lesser to greater comparison. He says, they condemn Jesus for violating man-made rules when he cares for the needs of people on the Sabbath day, but these same men are willing to overlook those very same rules for lesser reasons, for the needs of an animal. Pure hypocrisy. 
If the rule's worth violating for an animal, then for any greater reason, it should just as likely be broken. And in verse 16, he says, when it comes to God's willingness to free his people from their bondage, and this means whether a bondage from a demon or just the bondage of sin generally, waiting even one day longer for that freedom is asking too much. When God's appointed moment comes for him to provide freedom to his captives, that day has arrived and no man will stand in its way. Asking God to delay it even one day is worthy of judgment. See the point? It's not just the matter that this man might have let them come back and be healed the next day because that could have been his defense, right? I'm not standing in your way. I'm not saying you shouldn't accept this man. I'm saying just don't do it today. Jesus says to wait even one day for the time God appoints to free men from their bondage is to deny God to stand in his way. And that's what the nation's leaders are doing. They are essentially demanding that the nation of Israel overlook Jesus. And they all have their own reasons. They all have their own political purposes and selfish personal interests. But whatever the reasons, they're all committing the same sin. They're condemning the nation to continue in their sin and bondage to this man-made system of rules they've developed to continue that way further. And so Jesus humiliates them. And he prepares to dismiss them. Now, here's where this scene is set. I told you earlier today I was going to talk to you about how chapters 11 and 12 and 13 kind of knit together. So let me try to draw that line a little bit. Not all the way, because that's what next week will help me finish. But let me draw you up to that point. Chapter 11, if you didn't study it with us, the synopsis goes like this. Jesus showed himself before all the people, and particularly before the nation of Israel, and their leaders, particularly their leaders. He showed them definitively that he was the promised one, that he was, as the text tells us in chapter 11, the son of David. I encourage you, if you don't have the opportunity, or have not had the opportunity to know that lesson, it's a very important lesson. I'd go back and I'd uh, encourage you to go back and listen to chapter 11 uh, off the website so that you can understand what I'm t- saying. But for now, I hope you take my word for it that he convinces them through a very specific miracle that was unique to the Messiah, one that they had been told only the Messiah could do, that he was, in fact, the one he claimed to be. And the crowd saw the miracle and immediately said, this can't be the son of David, can it? Because they themselves recognized that miracle as the proof that they had been promised they would see when the Messiah arrived. They knew who they were looking at, but they were not ready to admit it. He calls them hypocrites over that. In the course of that miracle, they turn on him and they declare him to be not the Messiah, but the devil himself. Beelzebub, he's called. And following that declaration that he was not God, but rather the devil, Jesus is seen declaring woe, official woe. Woe in the scriptural sense of the word is not just, oh, bad things are going to happen. It means judgment. And he says it three times to both the Pharisees and the lawyers. Woe, 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 woe. Where else do you hear about three woes in scripture? Revelation. It is a very specific term. It's not a capricious, idle word. It meant that in that moment, God was declaring through Christ, his son, eternal judgment on that audience, on those men in that moment. There was no recovery. They were not going to get a second chance. They had just received their penalty, their sentence, let's say. The penalty was due to be carried out later, but they had just been judged for their Uh, blaspheming of the Holy Spirit, we're told in those scriptures. In chapter 12, he taught the disciples of what to expect as they themselves will begin to confront this same enemy and those who are under the enemy's power. So, having declared to the nation's leaders, woe, he then turns to the disciples, and in chapter 12, it's a long chapter that teaches on discipleship effectively, but it's focused on what to do when you face trials and how to conduct your ministry, and it's all spoken with an eye toward after I'm gone, though he doesn't explain that in detail at the time, of course. He warns them of persecution. He warns them of traps. He warns them of temptation. 
And then he begins to speak over the heads of the leaders and starts talking to the crowd itself at the end of chapter 12 and starts to call on them to repent of their hypocrisy and to acknowledge that they saw signs and they understood them. In other words, acknowledge what you know to be true. Tell me you saw what you saw and you know what it means. Or else, when judgment comes, you won't be able to escape it. That's how chapter 12 ended. And now in chapter 13, he begins by warning the nation, using a parable that speaks of the nation as a whole now, that if it doesn't bear fruit in keeping with God's promised arrival of his Messiah, they're going to have to see judgment as a result because they're useless to God. They haven't fulfilled their purpose. And that the Jews themselves should not take satisfaction in thinking that they were somehow exempt from judgment because of their Jewishness. But rather, if they persisted in uh, failing to bear fruit, they're going to be judged. And then, as we just saw, finally, Jesus demonstrates that once again, he can heal this nation. He is the one who healed the woman in the synagogue. He is the one appointed to bring the healing that they need to recover from where they stand before God. But alas, we see lastly in the synagogue, the leadership as Israel has it before them continues to persist in turning the people away from him. There has been no change of heart. Next week, with that as a lead-in, next week we're going to see definitively Jesus confirm their rejection. In other words, at the end of chapter, by the end of chapter 13, we will see Jesus effectively say, your chances are over. The nation of Israel will now suffer judgment for their rejection. All that remains is for me to go to the cross. Now, keeping in mind, this does not preclude on an individual basis members of that nation accepting their Messiah. We know Paul did subsequent, obviously. Paul says, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, but I came into faith because God appointed it to me. And, of course, he promises a remnant will always exist. So I'm not speaking of the annihilism of the nation of Israel. I'm not teaching that the nation of Israel is never going to come back and that it's forever been turned away by God. No, there's a plan that God will fulfill, given his promises to Abraham and to the patriarchs, that ultimately that nation will be restored and fully uh, restored into the land and will be his crown jewel nation above all nations again. That day is yet to be fulfilled. But they are in the midst now, even today, of judgment, continuing on for their rejection of their son. And we, therefore, as Gentiles, benefit, Paul says, for that rejection because while his back has been turned on his own nation for a time, his face has been turned toward us. Only one day to be reversed again so that his attention returns to his favored nation. But to the men and women who lived in this day and saw the Messiah firsthand and chose to turn their back on him firsthand, they are that evil generation that the Son spoke of time and time again. The evil generation that would see judgment in their day because the sons of Nineveh would stand up in judgment over them, or the queen of Sheba will stand up in the judgment day and pronounce judgment against you, because they saw and heard from someone lesser than me, and they accepted in faith, and you turned your back on me. That was the pronouncement given in an earlier chapter, chapter 11 and chapter 12. That's where we're headed. And in the end of chapter 13, what becomes now the focus moving on is parable after parable after parable. If you know Luke's gospel at all, you know that from 14 onward, particularly as you get into chapter 16 and 17, the parable of, of the prodigal son is sort of the most prominent in that group. It's parable after parable after parable because he is no longer speaking to a crowd whom he wishes to know the truth, but rather speaking to his disciples so that they might be prepared for the ministry that will follow his death. His focus becomes inward rather than external because there is no longer an offer to the kingdom made available on that day. Father, I thank you again for the time we've uh, had just briefly in your word this, this evening. We have uh, more opportunity, I know, to come and discussing and, and understanding your word. But I pray, Father, that what's been taught to this point has been pleasing and according to your will and according to your word. Father, we do our best to, to bring your word through the power of the Holy Spirit to those who would hear it. But we know, Father, as men and women, we are prone to mistakes. 
We are often uh, confused ourselves about what is truth and we depend, Father, on the Holy Spirit to correct us in that way. So I pray tonight that if uh, any of the teaching, Father, has not been accordance, in accordance with your will, that you would step into the hearts of those who may hear this message and illuminate it, Father, with the truth and uh, take my words away and replace them with your own. And Father, for, uh, for the purpose you've seen in presenting us this word tonight, though we may not even know it in, in this moment, I pray you've presented some time for it, will present some time for us here in the future, Father, where we may have an audience that needs to know what we now know, and we can be that source, Father, to illuminate for them the Scriptures, and uh, that maybe most importantly, Father, we may let it do its own work in our hearts so that we may glorify you and, and uh, Father, represent you and reflect your Son in this world even now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.